<clears throat> one of the areas that I teach on quite a bit and work with uh, several groups, several ongoing groups uh, that actually meet at my home about once a month, and some of you have been part of, is on the theme of uh, transforming the judgmental mind. With uh, some of these groups recently, partly, partly sparked by wanting to attend to some of the larger issues in the society, we've been focusing on the, on the relationship between the uh, quality of being judgmental and, and those of you who have heard me teach on this know that we always define judgment as distinct from discernment or a simple neutral noticing of something that's present. Very important point, I could give a whole talk based on that. Um, very important point because the, the, the judgmental mind is defined as reactive, or it's, it's seen as reactive, and yet also often, typically, not always, but often, there's a kind of noticing that can be quite accurate. When I'm angry and judgmental in relation to someone close to me, I may notice quite accurately and really attend to certain things that have happened. Whether I have a neutral description of that event is another question. But I may notice a lot and may be um, still quite reactive. Ideally, we want to notice, discern, and work through the reactivity so that we can respond compassionately. Uh, I just wanted to say that since there's some people here who haven't heard uh, perspective which we bring into this Monday gathering, Wednesday gathering quite often on the judgmental mind. In these groups we've been looking at one aspect of the judgmental mind which is the tendency when we're judgmental often to create an other and to separate, to polarize and I'm here and okay, and there's that other person. And we've also connected it to some of the larger patterns by which we create others, or the way we see another being as an other. It could be on the basis of race, or age, or gender, or uh, educational level, religion. We know all the ways that that occurs in our society. And it's been very interesting in that group to use that lens of uh, what we could call othering or creating an other as a lens to practice. And I was energized to uh, talk some about this theme today and I think next time as well because about 10 days ago I went to a weekend conference that took place in Oakland on the theme of othering and belonging. Um, I don't think they took their lead from me for having <laughs> developed this over many months, but they were the 
conference was a long time in the formation, and it was quite an ambitious conference. It looked at multiple forms of othering, and the idea was to understand those forms of othering. And there were remarkable presentations, some really amazing people. There was a man named Andrew Solomon who had written a book, some of you may know, called Far From the Tree. Does anyone know that book? Quite remarkable book. Um, and the presentation was very remarkable. And there's actually, if you want to hear something very close to what we heard, there's a YouTube presentation that he gave at the University of Michigan, which was, had very similar content to what we heard. And in any case, in his book, which was a New York Times bestseller, despite being a thousand pages long. That doesn't happen very often. But he had material, for example, on uh, like chap long chapters or long sections on a variety of groups of people, most of them with some disability, who become others. So he had a whole section on dwarves, people who are called dwarves, another on people with Down syndrome, uh, people with schizophrenia. Uh, he also actually looked at people who had committed uh, crimes and, uh, you know, and how they were seen. He actually did interviews with the mother of uh, Ryan Klebo, who was one of the Columbine, uh, Columbine killers. Right? And he, he was interested in these multiple mechanisms of how people are socially othered and how typically what he found, particularly in the case of disabilities, was that, was that, th that essentially within the family uh, there was, in the best cases, love, which overcame those barriers. And so it's a remarkable book and remarkable presentation. So there were, there were presenters, there was a lot of theater. There was, there was uh, theater from Native Americans and uh, a, uh, there was a, a dance troupe that had a number of disabled people in the troupe, you know, the, called the Axis Dance Company, which is actually local. You know. And there, was, uh, there were conversations between uh, a number of people. Joanna Macy was part of it. There was a pretty strong Buddhist practice emphasis because the main organizer is a man named John Powell, who's connected with the University of California, Berkeley, Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And he really framed it. Uh, and so there, he gave talks. There were social scientists who gave talks. There were psychologists who told us that um, we all uh, categorize and form others all the time in our mind, and that about 2% of our cognition on these matters is conscious. <laughs> right? It's all socially constructed, which means it can be deconstructed, but it's relatively unconscious. That the mind likes to categorize, likes to fit people, things, experiences into boxes. This could be a reason for um, despair, right? Because, you know, you look at something like uh, racism, and it's, you know, it's deeply, deeply conditioned and in people's minds. And it's not a matter, a lot of it is not a matter of conscious intent, right? It's a matter of how the brain is working with these categories which have been bombarded with images over decades, right? And yet it's reversible because of the plasticity of the brain, right? 
And you know, I know this from, we know this from practice, right? We know this from our own work with um, our own habits. You know, I know from, you know, for example, with the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, I've worked one-on-one with people who have had, as it were, the same neurons firing leading to profound self-judgment for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and those can be reversed, even though they've fired like whatever, 2 million, 10 million, a billion times, right? And that's one of, you know, that can give us some uh, encouragement. And I think that was, uh, that was, uh, that understanding was present there, even though a lot of these categories of othering and the conditioning that forms our sense of self is uh, deeply, deeply socially conditioned, it can be reversed. So I think there was, there was an essential hopefulness, but there were people like Bell Hooks was there in dialogue with John Powell, Joanna Macy, uh, Naomi Klein, who teaches a lot on, uh, writes a lot these days on climate change issues. She made the connection of othering and climate issues because uh, climate, uh, she, she used the language, the, the economy for the last few hundred years has always what ca- had what she calls sacrifice zones where people are other and their lives don't matter, whether as workers or as people in places where resources can be uh, reached or now in terms of climate issues, there are certain people who are in the sac- what she calls sacrifice zones who essentially are not seen as fully human, their needs don't matter as much as quote-unquote ours, right? So there was a, there was a lot, of, lot of material there, and uh, there was a, a New York Times columnist, Charles Blow, maybe some of you read him, his work, who, who uh, is African-American, has written a lot about these themes. So it was, it was quite uh, inspiring for me, partly also because I had been exploring and teaching on this quite a bit in the previous, uh, previous months. So I wanted to present that really uh, today and next week. And I wanted to focus particularly today on the theme of how we create um, an other. And interestingly, the conference really focused on multiple ways that we created others, because the ones that are best known probably, and studied are the ways we do that with social groups. We may create an other of the elderly, right? Or we may, you know, um, we may create an, uh, an other of people with disabilities, right? You know, I know my father, for example, was blind the last, um, well, what, probably uh, 30 plus years of his life. And he sometimes felt like he was being put on the shelf, right? and couldn't really contribute. There weren't the mechanisms to really integrate him so much with his work, even though there were a lot of, lot of support. So it could be disability. It could be, you know, so we know we're probably most familiar with the way we create an other through social categories, right? And a lot of it is almost habitual. It's hard to avoid at times. And we also can know how we have been uh, the recipient of being othered, you know, and because uh, uh, there are these multiple ways it happens, uh, all of us have been othered and will be othered. 
you know, whether it's because of age or gender or social class or some other, some other issue. That actually is a reason to, uh, that I find in the practical work here very hopeful because it means when we look in ourselves, we all have some experience of this. We know what it's like to, ha- to be othered, so to speak. You know, whether it's socially or interpersonally, right? Someone who doesn't really see us. One of the phrases used at the conference was that people who are othered are noticed but not seen. Right? Noticed but not really seen in the sense of understood as fully human or really there being an interest in knowing, okay, who are you? What's your inner life of meaning? And we've all had that experience, right? We've all had the experience of, in a way, not being seen, right? For different reasons, you know, interpersonally. And there also was an interest, and I think the concept of other also makes sense in terms of uh, how we ourselves other certain parts of ourselves, right? That we don't want to uh, recognize some part of ourselves. It could be our fear, it could be desire, it could be something about which there's shame, right? And we just don't want to go there, understandably, because it might be connected with, with some pain, you know. Um, I remember uh, reflecting some, there, there are interesting parallels between the way that we other certain parts of ourselves and the way that's connected with othering other people, right? I I remember uh, the psychologist Carl Jung said that that which we don't fully recognize in ourselves, we will tend to see in others, but not in ourselves. We externalize those qualities, see them in others, and see them as demonic, right? You know, or another, this is uh, Thomas Merton said it this way. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. Or uh, James Baldwin said it this, some, made a similar point he said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Which is very much related to the phenomenon we call scapegoating, right? There's some pain there and we project that pain and we project the responsibility for the pain onto a certain group, right? Or a certain certain people. So so the process of... uh, Looking for another is something that we do at these different levels. We can see it happening in terms of these larger social categories, the way we, you know, we can notice. And what I'm going to be inviting us to do in the next week is to study this in ourselves in the next week, the process of othering. And then next week, I'm going to focus on belonging. So it's going to have a happy ending. <laughs> going to have a happy ending here and we'll, or, or we'll, we'll point to a happy ending <laughs> because that was also the, the theme of the uh, conference was the reason that we look at processes of othering 
is so that we can uh, work towards that sense of fairness, sustainability, justice, and inclusivity. Right? And that it takes looking carefully at this to, uh, to move towards that. Now, I wanted to also make explicit, and this will be a kind of a segue to talking about how we practice with this, that I think even though the terms that I'm using are not explicit terms in Buddhist practice, it's very closely connected with what we look at because where there's an other, of course, there's a self. Where we have a strong sense of the other, we have a sense of separation and polarization from a sense of self. So actually noticing where I create another is one of the ways that we look carefully at that sense of self. And we can actually look that as, as a, oh, look what I'm doing here. And we can actually see that that lets us know some about what's going on with my, uh, what, I, what I have called a thick sense of self. Do you remember our work with the teaching of anatta or the sense of um, uh, what's usually translated as not-self? One of the core areas of insight in Buddhist practice and the the approach that I offered, which is um, trying to make it as practical as possible because it's very easy for that topic to get very theoretical, uh, was to look at ways that we experience, first of all, with the self, the sense of self being either what I called thin or non-existent. Like, when when do you experience without a strong sense of self-consciousness or self-image? Or uh, when is there a sense of just the flow of experience? You know, and, and a lot of us, when we're in situations where we probably feel most comfortable, maybe with people we feel most comfortable, we can, as it were, just, quote-unquote, be ourselves, which actually often means having no sense of self. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, right? We, being ourselves in the you know, vernacular, actually points to anatta, or actually a sense of not having a sense of self which is one of the aims of Buddhist practice. And the translations are very tricky on all this. I'm not going to get into that now. But isn't that interesting? We can most fully feel ourselves when we don't have much of a sense of self. And what are we feeling? We're feeling our joy or our engagement or our connection or our creativity or these beautiful qualities, a lot of which have to do without there being much of a sense of self. Remember, I cited my mom, who's a musician, who is supposed to be here today. I think they're running late. (laughs) (laughs) She'll walk in any moment. Anyway, she she has, you know, I was talking to her about not self and creativity, and and she said, you know, when I'm, when I, uh, I, I had to learn at a young age, I had to learn at age seven, I was asked to do a performance before a small group, and I was very nervous. And the, uh, my teacher said, just perform and don't think of yourself. You're not performing for yourself, you're performing for others. And you know, at seven, she just got, said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she, uh, 
she did it, right? And she just did it and she said that stayed with her because she's done a certain amount of public speaking, you know, which, you know, that area where we're more afraid of that than death, right? <laughs> According to the studies. And, and, and then I was talking with her late, later and she said, you know, in terms of meditation, um, uh, music is my meditation. And, 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 and when I'm playing music, uh, if there's a sense of self there, it's not good, she said. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. What does she play? Piano, yeah. And you have to let yourself be taken over the music. And then when we look to those experiences of flow and thinning the self, we found that in some of these activities, uh, very ordinary activities, like when you're fully engaged maybe in your work. You know, you may feel that sense of fullness without much sense of self. Or you can find it in, at times, in sports or in uh, creative activities. And we've looked at that some. I remember we talked about uh, jazz, right? I think with, with John. And, and so we looked at it that way, but we also looked at the other, so part of the practice, and we can do this meditatively, a lot of traditional Buddhist meditation is geared to letting us drop that, or see clearly where that sense of self appears, and open up and start seeing experience just in terms of the constituents of experience without there being a sense of self. So we sit and we notice, oh, there's a thought. There is a body sensation. You know, and traditionally this was understood in terms of a few different frameworks. So we might look at experience in terms of the teaching of the aggregates or the skandhas where we just look at the experience of sensation or form thoughts, um, perception, consciousness, and we see, uh, and as we get quiet in meditation, we just notice a flow of different experiential elements. And that also, when we have that in a sustained way, we have a sense of what this not-self teaching is, because we're actually experiencing often more fully than ever before, and yet it doesn't really have a, there's not a thick sense of self, what I call. And, the, and the, so part of the practice then is to do that. We can do that with these different uh, aspects of experience. A traditional practice also is to do it with the four elements, just to see one's experience in terms of experiences that are more like the air element, like breathing, or the earth element, which could be the sense of solidity or heaviness or contact and so forth. And just to stay with that. So a lot of what we experience in meditation can I open to the flow of experience? We can do that, for example, just being with a forest or trees. Can I just be with that flow of experience? You know, when I was first meditating, I really, it really became clear to me I'd be with this beautiful sunset and a sense of self would be there. Oh, what a beautiful sunset. And I wouldn't be seeing the sunset, right? Or nowadays, it's like the sense of self manifest as taking a picture, right? You know, and how much when we're in beautiful places these days, how many people actually notice anything? And how many people are just recording something, presumably for some future experience? Which I think if one experiences a place deeply, a camera and a shot can be wonderful, but there's obviously something problematic about uh, images replacing experience, right? That can happen, right? And so we also look for that thick sense of self, part of the practice. And 
In meditation, we do that by noticing, um, noticing when there's self-image, self-consciousness, when there's obsessive thinking referred to self, when there's reactivity, right? A strong sense of self, you know, someone says something, I react, it gets polarized, right? That there's a strong sense of self there. So the, this, is, this is a way of connect, this is a main way of uh, establishing the basis for how we bring in the sense of other. Because I want to interpret the sense of other as another way to see that thick sense of self. Does that make some sense? And so we look, we look for the, we look for that sense of other, and we can find it when there is reactivity in relation to another. You know, we can, let's think of the ways we can actually notice that othering. We can notice it when when I'm reactive towards another person, and I somehow polarize and put that person in a category. It doesn't have to be a social category. It might just be the, one of the most rudimentary of human ways of polarization, which is, me good, you bad. <laughs> Some version of that, right? This is the, the mother of all othering, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and we can notice that. We can notice that reactivity. We want, what I want to invite for that next week is, can, can you track that? Notice that tendency to polarize. Also want to invite the examination of when the sense of other fits under one of these social categories, right? Again, we went down a number of them which are most uh, familiar maybe, which is when we create an other through a sense of race or ethnicity, could be class, could be gender, right? And of course these forms of creating an other, again, disability, age, religion, educational level. In all of these, there's typically socially a hierarchy, right? And there's, as it were, a good member of the hierarchy and a less good member of the hierarchy, where we have the, the so-called normal and then the other, right? Because the other is really understood as someone who's not fully human in some way. Again, not worthy of being fully seen, to use that earlier, earlier image. And so we want to look at that. And we also can see how we create an other of our, out of ourselves when we uh, use some of these categories. We can other ourselves, right? And, and that would be expected, right? So one example. Um, uh, age is one of the ways that we create others, right? You know, we create others typically of the young and the elderly. And these are, uh, I know there was a, column in the Chronicle a few days ago about, by uh, a person who was, who was talking about how through the ages, older people had always basically said some version of, I think, I don't know, it was Gertrude Stein said, youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> and there's some, you know, there's some version of bemoaning the state of the young these days, right? And old pastime, you know, their quotes went back like 3,000 years. <laughs> People have been doing that. And, and, but also the elderly. Do you see how we create an other of the young, you know, and we create categories. Oh, and I, I find myself doing that, you know, sometimes. And we do the, the elderly. And there's an interesting phenomena that because of that conditioning, when we fit, you know, let's say 
for one of us, when we fit in the category of the young or the elderly, we might do the same thing. An example, uh, because the social conditioning is so thick, I turn, let's say that I turn 65 years old, which is a, a year that has a lot of meaning in our culture, right? And it's the year that you get, what, Medicare or uh, certain things happen. And it, it's often there might be some, you might get social uh, discourse. Uh, are you thinking of retirement? Right? Because it used to be the age where people retired because the life expectancy was like 66 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and the retirement benefits would not last very long. <laughs> so let's have you retire. Don't want to have you retire at 60. Too many benefits, right? So, um, and so I find myself 65, and all of a sudden I have these thoughts. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, gosh, maybe I should think of retirement, or it might be, you know, one has. Uh, I start thinking myself, oh, I'm, now I'm, I'm old, and you have a, a certain ache somewhere, right? And you know, whereas uh, like a 30-year-old has the same ache and just thinks, oh, let's, you know. Let's deal with that, okay? And then 65, oh, it's the beginning of the decline. <laughs> right? You know, so you see how the social categories sort of support certain, well, shall we say, negative interpretations, right? And so we want to we look, look at this, that we can, we can other ourselves. Interesting, right? We can create, make ourselves others according to these categories if we buy into them. Right? Oh, I didn't go to college. Oh. You know, and I can other myself in that way, right? I can other, you know, I, I internalize the othering of the society. And we all do that, right? And so we can, we can look at that. And so the, the practice, if we want to take this on for the next week, it would be to notice when there is some sense of othering. I would say set an intention in the morning, I will try to track this in myself. I will try to track this in my social engagement. Again, not, it, and, and again, the, the uh, sense of uh, creating an other doesn't mean that I'm bad, you know, because when we actually notice this, there can be at times uh, a certain amount of shame or guilt, you know, if, you know, what I've, I, I'm, uh, I'm part of two groups at the moment which are looking into whiteness and race. And one thing which has been surprising for me, which I didn't fully expect, is actually the level of pain and suffering that's there, particularly when people look at it. Um, you know, I, I've seen, for example, when people actually look at the conditioning, and here it's around race, which is a, a big one in our society, right? And there's a lot of you know, the other thing I didn't, wasn't explicit about is that all of these hierarchies have institutional and historical force connected with them, right? It's different in different cases, but obviously with something like race, it's, there's a huge level of suffering connected with it. And then when people actually start looking into how the othering process occurs, there can be uh, shame, there can be guilt, there can be pain, there can be anger, obviously sadness, compassion, and so forth. So just to be aware that that can happen. I, I've been surprised 
at that level. You know, and actually, the you know, John Powell in this conference, I, I, I've read some of his writings, and he says that you know, in looking at uh, a sense of whiteness in relation to race and ethnicity, people talk a lot about white privilege. And he says he thinks that that's been overestimated and that the cost and the suffering has been underestimated, which is interesting. We wouldn't usually go there, right? I found that in, in these groups I've been working with, just to say that when we're looking at this, you know, uh, we, we have to be aware that some of this could be uh, somewhat triggering. You know, I look at how I'm creating an other according to one of these social categories. Oh my gosh, look at that, right? Or I'm doing it, I'm othering myself. And that, that, is, that can be painful. So just to be aware of that. So the suggestion would be, again, we want to connect this. These are ways that the thick self manifests. So we also, I think, want to also keep looking at the way that we have this sense of flow and that uh, I think probably if we're doing this practice of othering for the time being, it's good to do metta and compassion every day. Some heart practice, because some of this can be, can be troubling. So to have the practice where we're actually hanging out and also noticing our, our beauty. You know, just, and, and, you know, if, that, if that feels applicable, then I, I think I would, I would recommend that. Um, and so we can set an intention in the morning and then just track that, how that appears in your meditation, how it appears just in the social engagement. And again, we can particularly look for where there's some reactivity. So we could particularly be on the lookout for reactivity, which is a key part of our practice. It's just, I will be on the lookout for reactivity. You know, when I, and again, the, the form of othering doesn't have to be with the social categories, it can be just interpersonally. I think I've told this story at least once or twice before of how at my neighborhood swimming pool um, about 10 years ago a woman as I was swimming pulled my leg as if to tell me to swim in a different way and it, you know in the moment it was quite a shock because you know in swimming, there's kind of a reverie. One's in a different milieu, and I was just in this meditative reverie, and all of a sudden, my leg was pulled. It was a shock. Ah. <laughs> you know, I felt like I was just channeling Sylvia a little bit there because she talks a lot about being startled, right? You know, I was startled and you know, knocked out of my meditative center. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> and and uh, and uh, the woman. Um, maybe fortunately for me, uh, is not a regular <laughs> at the pool. But I noticed, like, five years later she came back, and my mental othering of her was still present. You know, it's like the, you know, the, I guess, I guess that's the amygdala, right? It's like, it's like the amygdala has a long memory for anything which you know, it interprets as threatening survival, which in my case, having my leg pulled while I was in a swimming meditative reverie was, seemed to go into that amygdala territory. And so, uh, just to say that it's, you know, so it, we're really looking for any of these forms of othering, where there's reactivity, where there's a reaction. Again, from the point of view of our practice, the motivation is to have yet another area where we can see where there's a thicker sense of self. So we can notice it more and more, 
see through it and as much as possible uh, let go or just to some of the noticing maybe then let's say that I notice oh I have a certain tendency to create an other with this type of person whatever it is maybe people who don't have my high educational level right or whatever and I notice that that's a pattern right and I've studied that I notice that a pattern then I can actually the next time I'm with people who don't have that level, I might consciously say, I want to really listen and see this person. Right? That could be a way of practicing. Right? If we notice that habit, I could consciously say, with this person, I want to consciously try to be empathic. I know that I have some history which predisposes me not to. Right? And I want to actually try to be empathic. And it just be, could mean, let me just listen, let me watch my mind, let me not follow those negative thoughts, right? Or follow the negative patterns. So we're working with something that initially is on a subtle level, right? And what we're, this is, for me, I, I would frame this, this is another one of our practices that helps us to thin the self and essentially open us up to a sense of uh, the flow of the mind, the deeper places of the mind, the um, qualities of care, of empathy, of connection, which is really pointing to where we'll go next week because this quality of belonging, where we're pointing to with this, this is a practice which helps us to move towards greater belonging both interpersonally and socially. And what that belonging is about is the possibility of more inclusivity, which is really ultimately about empathy and love, being more there in our, not just interpersonally, but even socially. Care, whatever we call it, care, empathy, connection, and seeing where we, largely because of conditioning, again, so I think we can see there's conditioning. It's not, all, it's not just, oh, I'm a bad person, I do this. That's very important. This is largely because of conditioning. And in a sense, I, I like the way one person said it, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. It's an interesting distinction, right? This isn't my fault. All of the stuff, all the way we create another, is not my fault, but it is my, because it came, a lot of it from social conditioning or from difficult experiences. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. It's an interesting way to look at it. So the invitation would be to practice in this way. We'll compare notes, and then we'll look at, um, uh, we'll look at belonging next time and the way that this work connects. So let me see what I want to end with. Okay, this is a Zen-like, let's see, I'll I'll give two comments, uh, maybe three. First is from the Buddha. Well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. And then from uh, Dr. King, the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption, 
the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends, that can transform deep gloom into gladness. It is this love which brings about miracles in the hearts of human beings. I think I'll stop with that one. That's a good one to stop with. So thank you for your attention, uh, exploring this, uh, for me, very interesting theme. And so we have some time for uh, discussions. We can, use the, we can use the mic. Sure. And we can keep, I think we can keep recording. So any, any, why don't we just take a moment just to reflect and see what, see what is there, a moment of quiet. While we're sitting quietly, let me, let me do a very brief guided practice, which is just for yourself. You can just keep this to yourself. And this practice is to ask yourself, what are the, some of the ways that I create another? And this is just for your own private reflection. What are some of the ways that I create another, either according to social categories or in my interpersonal interactions or in relation to myself. We'll use the mic, and if there are any, any reflections or comments, or you could just really, even if you wanted to, share, if you wish, something that you came to from that reflection. Thank you. Um, I hope this has to do with otherness. It's, it's a curiosity that yeah. I have. Um, so I have some friends that belong to the Japanese Buddhist community in Sebastopol. It yeah. has that beautiful temple. And, uh, I, and I noticed that almost no Anglos go there yeah. for their practices. And I noticed that here, in this Buddhist community, very few Asians who would have been culturally Buddhist come here. And I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are... There are um, There are ways in which uh, there are different Buddhist communities, you know, and social scientists have looked into that and, and looked for some of the reasons. And you know, at uh, at Spirit Rock, there has been uh, a recognition that the uh, that the practitioners who come to Spirit Rock is partly because of being in Marin, is primarily European American. You know, whereas you go to a place like where I'd be teaching the next two Fridays uh, in Oakland, East Bay Meditation Center, and it's, it's different, you know, partly out of conscious choice. 
you know, like when I do a day long there, it'll be 40 or 50 percent what we call people of color. It's a different experience. Um, and the historical reasons for that are complex. You know, to some extent, the, the um, groups that were um, maybe really immersed in the Asian cultural traditions, you know, you can find in Berkeley where I live, there's a, a Thai temple, there are you know, Burmese temples, Cambodian temples, and so forth. Um, um, historically, I think they formed on their own partly because of the racism of the time, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. So there's a, there's a lot of complexities. And then when, um, when the founders like Jack and Joseph Goldstein came back from Asia in the 60s and 70s, they formed new organizations. Over time, there has been some contact. But I think some of it's because of the historical uh, these historical reasons. And then more recently, I think as most of us know, there's been a very strong emphasis on opening to much more diversity at Spirit Rock. You know, that, that is manifest in different ways. You know, I was teaching the month of March and there was the highest level of uh, participation in the long retreats that, that's ever happened at Spirit Rock, partly because of significant scholarship support. But that, you know, that's something that people want to have occur. And, you know, and the, uh, some of it's because of Marin, like I said, but there, so there are, com there are complex reasons. But there's, I think, a strong wish, certainly by the leadership here at Spirit Rock, to move, move towards much greater inclusivity. You know, and, you know, and at the conference, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the changing demographics, you know, both in California and the whole country, that uh, uh, the whole country will, in 30 years will be like California is now, you know, which is uh, what sometimes called majority-minority, right? So anyway, there's, could, could do a whole talk on that, but it's complex. But, but among the leadership now, I think there is a strong wish and many practitioners to uh, really see if there are any barriers towards that diversity and <coughs> act on those. Yeah. I think we had up front here and then in the back. Yeah. So th I think she, she was next here, oh. just right up front. Yeah. yeah. And then in the back. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, my place for practice, I discovered a little while ago that the other was all those people driving those other cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was some fear involved. Yeah. And I was stopped at a light a few weeks ago next to a car and there was a woman in there. You don't usually I don't usually see the drivers see in any way, sometimes not visually. And she was laughing about something, sitting by herself and I thought, oh maybe she's listening to a books on tape yeah. or something like that. But she looks so interesting. Yeah. And it kind of broke. <laughs> she, I wanted to know her. Yeah. It broke that other so that, fear. That, that's, you noticed the othering and you went to interest and empathy, right? How many people have some form of othering occur in driving? <laughs> <laughs> I notice. I have a, my main negative 
category of others and driving as people who tailgate. Does anyone share that? <laughs> okay, so this is, this is clearly not a form of othering. It's just common. No. <laughs> Discernment. No, no it, it is, uh, yeah. And you see, it, it, uh, great. So thank you for that. So it's really the response is seeing, noticing it and then seeing if you can respond with interest and empathy, you know. A lot, you know. Yeah, thank you. Um, you talked about noticing um, the othering of others and then noticing the othering of ourselves. Right. I would have thought that by necessity, when we notice others, when we notice the othering in others, we are automatically noticing the othering in ourselves. Yeah, well, think, think of some examples, right, where that might happen. I think that uh, uh, the, the, the most um, kind of stereotypical forms of social othering would be where I'm normal and this person is a problem, right? And so actually it's that quality of, uh, it actually goes hand in hand with not looking at oneself at all, I think. So am I, am I getting your question right? Yeah, no, if I, if I for example, and I, I'm not sure if you're talking about the unseen when we go to that place of the unseen. Yeah. But if I notice myself, if I'm noticing someone else, for example, you talked about intellectual capacity. Yeah then automatically I'm creating another within myself around my own intellectual capacity. Yeah, so, so two points. Uh, am I, when I other someone else or some other being, one point I didn't make clearly was that, and this came out at the conference, is that we also other the earth and we other non-humans. It's a big area, right? And we could, we could go into that, but yeah, uh, two points. One is when I I'm in that process of othering, I am uh, typically, when I'm not conscious of the process, I am creating a sense of self. That's partly, what, and I think that's one of your points, I'm mm. creating a thick sense of self. Mm. That's, that's in part why I'm connecting this mm. with the core of Buddhist practice, because mm. this is another vehicle for seeing where we have that strong sense of self, which the practice tells us is a problem connected with suffering, etc. And so, so the first point is, yeah, when I, when I other some other being, I create an identity here. But the second point is, is that typically I'm not conscious of it. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Especially when it's connected with a social hierarchy. Right. Yeah. But if, so the consciousness is about Recognizing another in, uh, recognizing that I'm othering someone else, but at the same time bringing that consciousness back to ourselves and putting ourselves in a position where I've either made myself better than or, or less than. That, that's right. Yeah. That, that's, that's right. Yeah, I think the, the point here, and this is what I would also encourage in this next week, is when you notice the othering, uh, we're invited to see, uh, notice uh, my own reactivity, for example. You know, I'm... Uh, is there a reactivity there? What are the thoughts? You know, are there thoughts, are there reactive negative thoughts? Is, is what's the sense of self there, right? And it, again, it's going to be somewhat subtle, but we can notice that what's there. Is there, when we, one good practice to do with this, which I didn't mention, is when you notice this reactivity, look at it at all levels of our being. Look at it at the level of the mind, but also the body. The body will be an access point to actually what's deeper, which there might be deeper emotions, there might be fear. 
a lot of the, at the conference, a lot of the emphasis was on a lot of these larger social forms of othering are uh, fueled by anxiety and fear, right? Uh, and, and yet we're out of touch with that, right? And so for our own practice, if I can notice I'm creating an other, what's there, go into the body, ask what's there in the emotion, we might notice with reactivity there's typically would be some negative emotion. And there'd also be, if we look carefully, a negative storyline. A lot of that is at a pretty unconscious level and has been repeated. But yeah, I think, I think where you're going with that is that every time we notice that I'm othering, there's something to look at here. Right? Maybe last one, and then we'll, then we'll finish. Um, yeah. I became aware of the depth, well, the thickness, to use your vocabulary, yeah. of my othering, um, I think, when I travel. Yeah. And places like Jordan, Egypt, Vietnam, or, you know, yeah. places where, to me, feel very exotic. Yeah. And I've been lucky enough to have experiences of meeting people in their homes and talking to them and learning about them and their lives and, and having this, <laughs> well, I think all of us know intellectually, yeah, under the skin we're all alike, yeah. but experientially it's a different thing. Yeah. So having that experience of, oh, you're just like me. That's right. Well, the degree to which I feel surprise or pleasure yeah. or interest in that probably is the degree to which I've been othering. Beautiful, yeah. <laughs> How many can resonate with that? Yeah. yeah, that was very clear and well said, yeah. It's really um, noticing the othering. So if maybe to draw out a few points from that, noticing the othering and then what helps us to, uh, once we've noticed it, to uh, shift, right? What helps us to shift? Um, in some moments, we may have the opportunity to actually you know, look at the person, try to you know, have an empathic intent. Sometimes, in some situations, we might actually be able to hear stories and actually interact. And again, in, at the uh, conference, uh, hearing stories, which could mean directly from someone, or maybe could mean reading books, right? Read books of the people you have othered. For me, I, I was reading this book, Far From the Tree, and reading and hearing some of these stories. I was particularly reading the chapter most recently on dwarves. It was just amazing just to be taken into that world, you know? And it's not something I know well, right? And it, it, it changed how I will look, you know, for if I encounter what they call little people, right? And so the chance to actually interact, to hear the stories, to hear the inside experience is, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a major way that the shift occurs. And the, the assumption is, again, the assumption of our Buddhist practice is that our hearts are good, right? And if we simply open up like this, the othering will dissolve, right? That's, a, that's an assumption. And yet there's a lot of dissolving that needs to occur. <laughs> right? There's a lot of dissolving that needs to occur. So it's a, great, it's a great story. And then noticing the surprise. Oh, my gosh. Not so different. I had, uh, had a form, my mind was saying other, 
I was fortunate enough to look, be able to interact and look, and now I say, not so other. And actually, maybe, maybe that word just drops, you know, or that uh, polarization drops, right? So it's a beautiful story. So the invitation is to explore this, okay? How many are intending to explore this in the next week? And come back and take notes, okay? <laughs> take notes. Remember to have the intention to do this at the beginning of the day. That, otherwise, you might remember it for a while, three hours, but then it gets lost. Remember, remember the intention at the beginning of the day, maybe two or three times during a day if you really want to practice. And then just bring it in and see what happens. So uh, let's just sit for a moment to, to finish. And let be present your intention for the next week. And whatever had, a, had a, an impact on you it might be, for many, related to the theme we've explored. It might, for some of us, it might be something very different that is most important. You can let that be there and let that be guiding that intention as well. And then we finish knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all others and multiple meanings of that phrase. We offer the fruits of our practice to all beings, knowing that all beings includes us. Thank you, and I look forward to continuing.